Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man that got his start in the music industry back in the mid-80s with an R&B group out of Tulsa, Oklahoma by the name of Mason. He has since gone yeah. on into the ministry and last season auditioned for The Voice. So we're going to talk about everything from Mason, the ministry, all things Oklahoma. Ladies and gentlemen, please right. welcome Mr. Tony Mason to Beyond the Album Cover. Tony, welcome. Thank you, man. Thank you so much, man. I'm honored to be here. It is, a, it is an honor and a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out, man. Man, yes, it's not a problem. Yes, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and do this interview because how I mentioned how I came across Mason was I was listening to an old air check from WZAK out of Cleveland on their Quiet Storm show for Lovers Only, and they were playing Breakfast. Right. Oh man! Oh wow! Wow, that is awesome. That was uh, that was a well-written song, my brother, and I wrote that song, man, and. And that song brings brings back a lot of memories. It actually literally makes me think about Gerald Levert. I met Gerald Levert um, some years back, and we'll get into it. But I met him some years back, man. And and uh, here he came to do a concert here, and he looked at me. I was backstage, and he looked at me. He said, "Man, why do you look so familiar?" And I said, "Well, I'm Tony Mason." And uh, he said, "Are you with a group?" I said, "Yeah, the group Mason." He said, "No way, breathless." I said, "Yeah, man, that's my joint." He was like, "Dude, that is my favorite song." Like in this season that's my joint right there and so every time I hear that song it reminds me of the time that he and I had a chance to had a chance to chop it up man and you know they came to came to my town to do a, to a concert man so it was cool but anyway <laughs> yeah we're gonna get heavy into that once we get into <clears throat> about how you guys got your deal with Electra so tell me about yeah. life growing up in uh, Tulsa Oklahoma man um, Tulsa is a very um, Tulsa's low-key in the sense that you know, um, a lot, uh, there's a lot happening. Well, and especially now, but now growing up, man, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a home, mother and father, you know, two brothers and a sister, man. And uh, we were all into sports. And uh, my dad was one of those, you know, uh, highly disciplined uh, fathers that uh, you don't get in, involved in any extracurricular activities until you get your homework done. And, uh, and so, uh, he bought us musical instruments at a very, very young age. And my dad ended up being like Joe Jackson, man. He was like, you, you, you know, did y'all, did y'all practice? You know, and we, if we ever missed, yeah, he, he, he made us get up. He, he didn't care if it was one or two in the morning and get up and go. Cause I didn't buy these instruments for y'all to sit, sit back and, and not appreciate what I did. So I grew up in a house full of music. My mother and father were both highly, um, skilled my father was a singer his sisters all sang and you know and his brothers a couple of them played instruments my mother's side of the family everybody sang and they all played instruments so we couldn't help but get it man we were all musically inclined coming up man and uh so growing up here you know Tulsa you know is probably known more known for state of Oklahoma for country music but I can tell you it's some gifted talented artists in this city and uh and so we kind of came up in that era man where gap band was huge and and uh and all of that man so growing up here i love it i love my hometown man 
Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of Tulsa, a lot of people internationally are see seeing Tulsa in, in the light now because of Black Wall Street and shows like Lovecraft Country and The Watchmen have highlighted Black Wall Street and what took place. Now, being in the school system in Tulsa, was it made aware to you all about Black Wall Street or was it where you kind of had to go underground to kind of sort of know about it? Kind of had to go underground. Um, if you were, if you're African-American, um, a person of color in this city, you knew about it because they weren't going to talk about it in public schools or we're going to talk about it in public. It is a blemish on this great city. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a horrible blemish and they did everything they could not to, not to, uh, let the general public know what happened. But, um, so we do, we knew, we, we knew what it was all about. And as I got older, um, I had a, a job I was working for, for a gentleman uh, who was a very wealthy oil man. He's from Kentucky, but he had a couple of businesses here in Tulsa and I worked for him. And he, when I started working for him, he was already in, already in his 80s and he knew the history. He knew exactly what, what happened. And he explained in detail because it was one of his buildings downtown where all of the allegations and the accusations were made against, uh, against the young, um, young black uh, guy who you know, supposedly sparked all of this mess. So, uh, and the white girl who sparked all this mess, man. So yeah, we, we had that, we knew, but they didn't want, they didn't want you to know that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that actually happened in our city, man. Yeah. Cause I can remember seeing about a year or so ago, Charlie Wilson did an interview on the breakfast club and he was kind of echoing those same sentiments where it was a known right. unknown. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely, that that's a great way to put it, man. It was, uh, it was horrible. And, um, you know, this city as beautiful and as powerful as Tulsa is, man, you know, you could tell um, that there still were some issues with race. And, uh, you know, we had our experiences, man, coming up, you know, and, and, uh, and even now, sadly enough, you know, you can still feel the tension now that this is really coming out because it's been a hundred years, man. It's it's a hundred years, you know, uh, coming up, man. And and uh, this thing is, they're talking about it everywhere now. So the city is feeling it. Because mm, so. of the internet and it's everybody now knows what's going on, there's more information. For those of you that don't know, there were Black Wall Streets in all parts of the country, not just Tulsa, Durham, North Carolina, pretty much anywhere yeah. where you had upward mobility of African-Americans and certain folks within those towns, then like the upward mobility and wanted to make sure you stayed in your place. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> no doubt about it. It was, you know, it got, I'm sure it's, you know, it could be the same everywhere, but this was the place, man, where they decided we're going to take, you don't want to share your land or your, or your wealth. We're going to take it just like they did everything else around here, man. You know, this this whole country would you know belong. Post. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are certain parts of Oklahoma that you don't want to get caught dead in without a full tank of gas and don't catch a flat. Sure, man, you are you are so you're so right. Um, there's a little town here in, in Oklahoma called Norman, which is where Oklahoma University is. It's a sad truth, but uh, Norman, Oklahoma, just took 
the Lights Out Law off of their books, January of 2020. So the Lights Out Law is if you're a person of color, don't be caught outside of your neighborhood after dark. Don't be, don't be caught on the wrong side of town. And we're talking January 2020. Wow. So it's been just a little over a year. This just came off the books. Or they could do what they will with you, hang you still, um, arrest you or whatever. And that, um, that just came off the books, man, a little over a year ago. That is crazy that some places still had the laws and the books about sundown towns, where if you look at Lovecraft yeah. Country, if you're this, you better be out by right. sundown. Yep, that's truth, man. I mean, and it's, um, you know, I'm, 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 it's what's crazy is that I'm in Norman every weekend. Uh, I do some some ministry out in Norman every Sunday morning. I'll drive from Tulsa to Norman and and go uh, go minister at this church in song. And I'm a worship leader there. And and uh, it's sad. Uh, the pastor and I were talking about it after church one day. He said, "Man, they just took it off the books." And this was I was there last year, and they told me last year, and I I couldn't hardly finish my dinner. I I, I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I couldn't yeah. remember, man. We still got a long way to go, even though we've made steady progress. Now, we mentioned Uncle Charlie and the Gap Band, which for those who don't know, Gap Band, Greenwood, Archer, and Pine, but also coming out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Anita Bryant, the late Leon Russell, and also the yes. late Wayman Tisdale. For those of you that don't know Wayman uh, Tisdale, look up some of his highlights when he was playing down in Norman in the Big Eight with Oklahoma, was the number two draft pick in the 85 draft, retired yeah. to focus on his music career. He was so good, the late Billy Tubbs rearranged his Sunday practice schedule so that he can yeah. go play at his dad's church. Now, for those of you that don't know, part of the interstate in Tulsa is named after his dad. That's right, L.L. Tisdale, L.L. Tisdale Parkway. Um, and um, Wayman was a very, very, very good friend of mine. Uh, that was my buddy, man. Um, back when we were in middle school and Wayman and his family moved to Tulsa from, from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, Wayman went to Roosevelt Middle School and I went to Carver. And uh, Wayman was a huge, huge gentle giant and he had a love and a passion for music. And um, and when he was coming up, he was just learning to play. He was so more into music than he was into basketball. And so um, my two brothers, I have two brothers uh, that are that make up our group. One is six seven, and one is six six. So they would take Wayman out uh, at a park uh, called um, uh, called Holy Family, and uh, they would be out there, man, and they would be practicing with him. And they taught Wayman. Uh, the court, the skills of coordination. If you're going to be, if, when you're a big man, my brothers taught him how to do all kinds of stuff. And then by the time Wayman Till, Wayman Tisdale got eighth and ninth grade, it was a wrap. That dude took over basketball, took over Booker T. Washington high school and took over Oklahoma university, man. And, uh, and all that time he and I would sneak out of class sometimes and, and go into the music room and I'd have my guitar and he'd have his bass and we would be in there you know, skipping, skipping class and rocking out, man. Yeah, so boy. it's hard to believe where you will look and say, you mean to tell me the guy playing the bass in the church is one of the most highly recruited yeah. basketball players in the country, soon to be right. NBA player? Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. He, um, and Wayman was very, um, he was very different in the sense that Wayman was, he's left-handed. So he would flip his bass upside down because he you know all he had was right hand bases he didn't have a left hand base until 
he was old enough to pay, you know, to get his own, but he had a right hand bass and he learned how to play with the strings upside down, left-handed. So that's a skill. That's a skill that, that that guy um, was gifted. I mean, he was able to do it because most of your bottom strings are always on the top. Dude flipped his bass and his bottom strings were on the bottom and, and he worked it out and became you know, very, very, very uh, fluid uh, in playing jazz bass, man. Guy, incredible. Right, and it was amazing to see what he was able to do at Oklahoma on the hardwood because as you and I know, Oklahoma is a football-based school, you know, legendary coach Barry Switzer and all of the greats yeah. that came through OU, Bosworth, Billy Sims, yeah. Adrian Peterson, Baker Mayfield, yeah. Kyla Murray. So being yeah. from Oklahoma, is it where part of the state is Boomer Sooner and the other half Cowpokes down in Stillwater with <laughs> Oklahoma State? That's exactly what it is. And I was, I went to Oklahoma state. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's crazy. When I show up to Norman every Saturday to go down and prepare for Sunday morning, I'm wearing my OSU gear down in Sooner country, <laughs> you know? So, um, but it was huge, humongous rivalry. And, you know, on the other side of Oklahoma state, man, you have Barry, you have Barry Sanders and, and you have, um, you know, Thurman guys Thomas. like him. Uh, Thurman Thomas, man, and and some of these great, you know, wide receivers and running backs and these guys coming out of Oklahoma State, you know, um, you know, and they they help put our put this state on the map. So, yeah, it's uh, the country's the, the state's divided and uh, but in a good way. Yes, yeah, just <laughs> like in North Carolina with uh, you either a Duke fan, Carolina fan, NC State, we don't care about. Right. So um, I mentioned Leon Russell and the Gap Band at the top of the interview. How yeah. inspirational was it for you and your brothers to see them make it out and have their success? And how did it strive for you guys to say, hey, we got to sharpen our craft because they, they're from the hometown and we got to get just yeah. as good, if not better, if we want to get out and get a deal? You know, um, you know, with the Gap Band, I mean, we grew up, of course, listening to them and realized that they were Leon Russell's band, you know, for for several years. He kind of, you know, really helped to put those guys on the map. They their band was formed back in high school at Booker T. Washington when they were in high school. And uh, it's, this is crazy. But Charlie Wilson, uh, you know, we could, we all call him Uncle Charlie. I could have really called him Uncle Charlie, like for real, because he he was in love with my aunt. They were they were classmates and uh, and uh, which is one of my father's sisters. And uh, and so they didn't end up getting married. But um, but we grew up listening to them and knowing that Leon Russell, such a proficient songwriter, that guy was incredible. You know, he wrote a song that I sing, you know, quite often that song called A Song For You that Donny Hathaway made extremely popular. That was written by Leon Russell. And uh, and so our connection here, I mean, you couldn't come up from you couldn't be around um, the north side of Tulsa in music and not be good. You couldn't. We have some we have some absolutely incredibly gifted musicians in Tulsa, Oklahoma. These guys are incredible. And we took it very seriously. And uh, and so they were our they were the roadmap that we followed you know, to, um, they set the bar and, uh, and we were like, man, we, you know, we can't, and then having a father like I have, you know, we, we could not come out half stepping here, man. Couldn't do it. Well, so, so you had to make sure you come correct. And also I should mention that David Gate or David Gates, one of the two from bread is from Tulsa as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Tulsa has a very rich history and legacy in music. Um, I think that where we may lack the most is in that in that place where um, R and B um, music is probably. We've got people from here, like there's a guy, Philip Johnson, was what that uh, is from Tulsa, and Philip um, Philip played with a, a very popular R and B group in the in the '90s. He sang. Um, oh gosh, I can't. I, the name of the group just slipped my mind, but you you would know exactly who they are. They had the song Honey Dip and they had the oh, song Portrait. Portrait. Phil, Phil Johnson, man. He went to we went to the same high school. Phil was with Portrait. There's another band from here that that made it made it to Capitol Records back around the time right before we signed our deal. It was a group called Colorblind out of Oklahoma City. Wow. So Oklahoma has a very rich history of, uh, and then Color Me Bad, you know, the mm-hmm. Color Me Bad from Oklahoma City. So, mm-hmm. you know, Oklahoma's got a got a history, man. Yeah, and um, also Hanson. Yeah, Hanson. Hanson is right there from right here in Tulsa, man. You know, um, as I had a meeting with, with those guys about, about a year ago. We were talking about doing some things and preparing for doing some festivals together uh, just to really kind of blend um, and, be, and show more racial unity in where music is concerned. And uh, and so, but then COVID hit, and all of that kind of put got put on the back burner for a minute. Yeah. Now you mentioned how being from Oklahoma, it's hard to do R and B and break out because when you think of R and B music, you think of locales from out of the West Coast, the South, right. or the Midwest. So, what extra did you guys have to do as Mason to say, hey, we want to be taken seriously and not be looked at as a laughing stop because we're from a place where. R&B is not really on record labels radar. Right. Right. You know, we we started writing music, man, many years ago. We all all three of us were gifted songwriters, my two brothers and I. And um, and um, we put together music demos and uh, we all played into sport. We all played sports. Um, My brothers were very heavy into basketball. I was very heavy into football. And uh, and so I had I had some scholarship offers to go play ball in college and uh, and um, and opted to stick with the music. And, uh, and my brothers both went to college to play basketball. And, uh, and, but we were recording demos and we had a good friend of ours um, that was a roadie. He left high school uh, here in Tulsa and became a roadie for the Commodores way back, you know, and the Commodores had their, and they're still playing, but this was back in the day when, you know, you had Zoom and all those things out by the Commodores, those, those, that music. This guy was one of, the, one of their roadies from Tulsa. And he worked his way into learning the business of, of concert promoting. Uh, right now, he's a very prominent promoter. He right now manages BB King's Blues Band, and and uh, and and so he does a lot of concert promoting right now, and is working on a record label. But this guy paid for us to get a, a recording recording uh, a demo. So we recorded a demo. And he came by our house one night. Uh, we had the barcades coming to Tulsa on a Friday night. And uh, he came by the crib one night and said, hey, man, I want to take y'all. I, want, I got some guys that I met in the industry and I, I want I let them hear your demo and they want to meet y'all tonight. And to be honest with you, we didn't believe him. <laughs> we just didn't believe him. He came back by the house, picked us up. We went and walked into the backstage at his concert. And these guys, the producer for the Barcades, he worked with Stax Records. I'm, we're talking, <laughs> excuse me, old school. I mean. This guy was a true, he was a true producer. He said, man, you guys, y'all got something. Would y'all be willing to come to Memphis 
and work with our production company and we and let's put a project together. And that's pretty much long and short of how it happened. And, uh, but they took us very seriously. Whenever we played, when we were much younger, when we played, we would do bad little bands. I'm, we're talking, I'm talking middle school. We were, we whooped everybody, all these bands. I'm talking older bands. We had to be good. My father did not allow us to slack in, in uh, setting the standard for excellence, man. We were, we, we could, we could play. Yeah. So to quote Ricky so, Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last. Come on, man. <laughs> if That's you the ain't deal. first, you're last. So that leads me back to you guys probably did the talent show circuit and anywhere where yep. there was an open mic night to really hone your craft. Cause like you were saying, Battle of the Bands, it was where I know this band is one Battle of the Bands, maybe three weeks running. And now I want to kick their butt so that we can have bragging rights. Cause I know a lot of the guys associated in the time, they were saying that's yep. how they cut their teeth up in Minneapolis doing the Battle of the Band circuit. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. We, my father would, would get us, I mean, we were very young. We were playing in places that, you know, you had to have a lick, you had to be old enough to drink liquor, you know, to get into some of those places, man. But my father had us playing there and he, we played at our family reunions. We played at, you know, high school talent shows and, you know, we'd have these big outdoor festivals in Oklahoma, these Juneteenth celebrations and all of that. We would show up, man. And we weren't playing. We were playing stuff like very complicated pieces, like, you know, we were big into Earth, Wind & Fire. I mean, huge, you know, their stuff is extremely musical. And you had to, you had to have, a, have knowledge of music. And we, we were playing stuff like that and nailing the tracks, nailing the vocals. You know, we have a sister that sang with us, you know, so our vocals, vocals were always tight. But musicianship, man, we didn't play that. So we, you know, we, we, we tried to stand out every time and we did go hard or go home. Now, were there any other labels in the running to sign you guys for you guys signed your deal, I believe with Electra, correct? Man, listen, this was crazy. Um, long story short, when we, by the time we got to, um, to that season happening, Quincy Jones, there was a huge showcase and we were in Memphis. This is where we signed, you know, with, uh, with the Barkays, their home base was in Memphis. Long story short, man, there was a, there was a showcase set up for another band that the production company was kind of getting behind this other band too. They're from Memphis. And, uh, and so we, they put us on the showcase at the very last minute. So we had Quest Records, you had Electra Records, you had Capitol Records, you had Polygram and Atl At Atlantic. Those are the five, there were five labels that showed up to, to watch this showcase. And now, you know, we, Quest Records, is, was, that was Quincy's label at the time, Quest Records, man. We were excited. We got put on at the very last minute. Then the showcase got canceled, right? So later that night, um, of that, that night of the showcase, this band did their showcase. Next day, those labels came back to the recording studio and said, look, man, we like the band, but do y'all have anything else? Is there anything else that we can, you know, you got music that guys are working on. I'm in the, and I'm in the control room in the recording studio. Here's all these five record label reps in there. And I just happened to be sitting in the cut in the corner. Didn't say a word. I'm just listening. Very young. I'm just kind of watching, man. They, the, my, the head engineer, he said, Tony, go lock the door. I locked the door because we weren't supposed to be doing this. Locked the door, they put that reel on, man, put our music on and started playing. Our, he got a mix and started playing our tracks. All five of those record labels, every one of them, picked up their phones after they heard the first eight bars 
and said, I think we, we got a, we got a group here. What do y'all call yourselves? And, and this guy, Robert said, Hey man, they call themselves Mason. They're all brothers. That's one of them back there. I didn't say a word. I was just sitting in the cut, man. My brothers had left. They left the studio. I'm, I'm just sitting there in the cut, man. And, uh, and they started a bidding war, five labels. The and Electra. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. We were very, very humbled and very excited, you know, to have yeah five record labels, man, bidding for your stuff, man. That was, you know, and then to get the opportunity when we did it, when we signed, we finally signed, man. We had a chance to write all of our own music. We it was it was just a beautiful situation, man. Yeah, which is rare for a new act to sign to a label and have complete creative control because the story with Prince man. when he signed with Warner yeah. Brothers was originally they wanted Maurice White to do all this stuff. Right. Once they did a right. showcase of him in the studio and they saw him doing everything, they're like, uh-uh, this guy's yeah. his, his own guy. He's his own. And that's what that's what ended up happening. You just took the words out of my mouth. They were writing songs, a production company were writing songs for us. And we would do them, but it was like, it was like, you know, the scripture says that when, when David was going to go out to battle, Saul gave him his armor and his Saul's armor didn't fit over David. And David was like, ah, this is not working for me. It was like, they were giving us tracks and it wasn't working for us. And, and the guy that produced the bar case, he finally said, you know what, you guys need to do your own, y'all need to write your own stuff and we'll let y'all get a piece of the production. And so they brought a, a producer out of um, out of Philly. His name was Kay Williams Jr. Uh, rest his soul. He passed on in, in 2008. But this guy was he was a major player in the game. And uh, and so between Kay and, and us, we produced that record, man. Produced wow. that Mason album. Wow. And I was surprised you mentioned the five labels that were bidding for you guys that Lonnie Simmons and Total Experience didn't come up in the equation. Well, uh, this is another thing. <laughs> this is another thing. This is this is crazy. Charlie Wilson and my father were very good friends because Charlie and my father's sister were in high school. They were dating. We literally everybody thought they were going to be married. I thought the guy was really going to be my uncle. And uh, but um, but um, Charlie wanted to take us to Total Experience. He called my dad several times and uh, and tried to get to Memphis to try to get in uh, on the situation. But man, when I tell you Electra bit, they bit like a, like a hammerhead. They didn't play. They started throwing out, you know, numbers. And, and I mean, they produced paperwork very, very quickly. And so, um, so Charlie did. And, and uh, this is what's crazy. We, by the time the record was finished, it came out, we flew to London, England to do a to do a television show called Solid Soul. And you can see the videos online. It's on YouTube. Um, uh, the single, the second single was called Pour It On, Mason Pour It On. If, if there's a video that came from a television station in London, England. When we filmed that show, we took a break after the first segment. We filmed two segments, took a break after the first segment, segment walked out, going down the hallway to the green room. And guess who's coming up the, coming up the hallway? The Gap Band. So you have two groups from Tulsa, three brothers apiece. Um, we're coming up. Charlie took a look at me and he looked at my dad and he and he my he hugged my father and he looked at me, he calls me Bay Boy, because we're both we're both the youngest uh, boys in the group, youngest males in the group. He said, Bay Boy, what you doing here? I said, Man, I said, we just got through filming. I'm starstruck because I still I'm still a humongous Charlie Wilson fan. I'm I'm like still starstruck. 
you know, but we had a chance to talk to those guys, man, over in London, England, filming a television show. They were filming a segment for the next week. Wow, that so, is so crazy. So what was that process like after you guys signed with Electra going to the studio to cut that album? Were there songs that were already done and they just had to be refined in the bigger studio? Or was it where once we got to the studio, start from scratch? We we wrote some songs here and took about two or three of them. But the rest, we wrote right there in the studio. We wrote my brother, Trey. <coughs> Trey is a prolific songwriter. The guy is incredible with music. Uh, he's a musical genius. And uh, and so he would bring these tracks and I would hear I'm, I'm in here listening to the tracks while he's while he's creating. I'm playing guitar and and he's playing guitar and writing. And the, it was just it was like peanut butter and jelly with us. It really was. I mean, you know, the peanut butter might be the foundation, but man, I would come immediately the hooks, the melodies, the lyrics, all that stuff just flowed. And so we wrote, wrote that entire album. I would say we, we wrote the album literally in about a week. Wow. And so, and then we took, it took us a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks to record the whole thing. And, uh, and so um, the process of our songwriting was, I mean, we were all already, you know, we were already doing that uh, quite well and quite often. Wow, and that's so, nuts because back in those days, people, studio time was not cheap. I repeat, no. studio time was not <laughs> cheap because you didn't have your stuff ready. It was coming out of your advance or it was coming out of your points. Come on. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they knew how to get their money out of you, man. It, it really wasn't. And the budgets that they had were huge back then. Those recording budgets were crazy because studio time, like you said, it wasn't cheap, man. And we ended up having a really good new artist deal we had a you know it sounds <clears throat> today in today's terms it sounds like it might be a bit uh exorbitant but man listen we had a seven-year deal and the first two years were going to be developmental but we started off with a hefty budget by the time we would have gotten to the end of that that contract that budget was going to be a million dollars and back in those days for a new artist that was unheard of and we had a great situation they um, they trusted us. Um, they trusted our songwriting. <laughs> they trusted our production. They trusted everything we did. They loved us. Now, a you huge plan that um, part of the deal was a development deal. Now, when they saw that you guys were prolific in songwriting, and you were almost kind of fine, polished and ready to go. Did they say, OK, right. we're not going to do promo runs, club dates. These guys, these guys are ready. We're going to go ahead and push them out. We actually did do some we actually did do some some club dates. We did um, our, our first one. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we when they first released the record, we left here and went straight overseas, straight to London. And we were in London for three months over in Great Britain. We toured everywhere over there, over in in, uh, in the British um, British part of the world. Man, <clears throat> we did a huge show called Pristatin over there, which was a big. It was like uh, Woodstock back in the day. And it was just an all day, all night, all week music fest. And we showed up over there, man, with, you know, and uh, and we were killing it over there. As soon as we got back from there, we came here and we did some some track dates and club dates. Um, you know, we our first club date in New York was with Keith Sweat when I Want Her just came out. We over, we were on before Keith and uh, and um, and we did. You know, did those. So we did several. We did coast to coast, did some track dates and things like that. And right. and after they saw and, and knew that we could play man, they said, we got to get these guys on the road. 
Wow. And the crazy thing that you mentioned, Keith, when he was signed to Ventertainment, which was signed to Electra and then make it last forever when it dropped in 87, that was the game changer for R&B. Because think about it, people, for those of you that are too young not to remember, (laughs) R&B and hip hop were like this. They didn't meet in the middle. But when Make It Last Forever came out, they did this. It's been like this ever since. That's truth. That's truth, man. You know, we had a chance to to meet Keith. He's an extremely, extremely humble, extremely nice guy, man. We we had a great time working with him in New York. We all, as a matter of fact, where we did our, both of us, that was our debut in New York, just like him. We were at the Red Apple. The Red Apple was a humongous three-story venue, and it was owned by Stevie Wonder. And and the crazy thing with that is when we left, it was it was Christmas Day, December um, 1987, Christmas Day. We flew that morning from Tulsa through an ice storm, landed in Dallas, and there was Stevie Wonder in first class on, on the plane in Dallas. I'm walking into the plane. I'm looking at this man sitting in, in first class and he had a guy with him that was helping him with, you know, with his with his travel and that kind of thing, his personal guy. And uh, man, I stopped and, and I asked the guy if I could sit down. And I sat down and talked with Stevie and he was tell, asking me who I was and all that. And I talked to him and I'm again, I'm starstruck. But um, he was asking me, well, where do you where are you headed? I said, I said, I said, well, we're obviously headed to New York. I said, we have we have to sing tonight. And he said, well, where are you singing? And I said, I'm singing at this place called the Red Apple. He never told me at the at the moment when we were conversating that that was his spot. He just flipped open his little computer, his little Braille computer, and he started looking and he said, uh, and then he closed it back. He said, the Red Apple is my place. I said, excuse me? He said, this is my place. And I'm thinking to myself, I get to sing in front of you, man. This is crazy. Are you serious? And he couldn't be there. He was doing, he was filming a television, a Christmas special that night. And and, and I'm sorry, going live on television that night. So he couldn't be there. But it was, it was just, you know, just the opportunities that I've had um, to be around some great legend, legendary uh, voices and, and producers and songwriters. It's just been incredible for me, man. Yeah, we mentioned at the top of the podcast, Breathless. And when I first heard the record, I could immediately right away hear the Earth, Wind & Fire influence. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That influence, man. I mean, that's my brother. My brother, uh, my brother Clifford, man, Trey, we call him Trey. That guy, um, I mean, just an incredible guitarist. He, you know, he, he, he's naturally gifted. Of course, we all were very naturally gifted. We played, all of us played by ear. And then we went to school and learned, you know, learned the stuff. But that guy, um, that guy was an Earth, Wind & Fire fanatic. So there was a ton of influence on that song. And, uh, and that song, that would have been the third single off the record. It didn't, but you know, things happened at that point. And um, but we were they were they were about to release Breathless, man. I think I think that because uh, the second single went number two Billboard. I think Breathless would have took it to, would have went to number one. I just do. So do you think it was primarily like label politics why Breathless never came out? Because I mentioned Breathless was originally hit in the Midwest because it was played on WZAK out of Cleveland for Lovers Only. So do you think that kind of played a part to not really having that big national push for, for you guys? You know what? I'll tell you what, what really happened was um, our management team, and the record label, <clears throat> they were having problems. Com- communication between our management and the record label, they butted heads all the time. And it, unfortunately for us, 
they um, they dropped us because they didn't want to deal with mm. the management situation. Oh. They got in the middle. That middleman situation mm. was it was a mess. So you guys got caught and in you, the crosshairs. We got caught in the crosshairs, man, and uh, and it wasn't. It was devastating. We were very young, so you know to have a major situation, have a number two record, and then we couldn't get much done because of the middleman we just couldn't and so um and so when they released us from the contract um and it was because of that it wasn't because of record sales it wasn't because of airplay and all of that because you know you mentioned carolina i still have to this day i still have all of our tracking sheets from billboard we were huge in the carolinas North Carolina, we had music playing everywhere all week in North Carolina. I, I couldn't wait to go, go to North Carolina. That would have been like, man, that would have been like walking into, into heaven at the time, you know, just with your fan base. But when they dropped us, man, it devastated us. We didn't know why for years. We didn't know why. And, um, and, and we finally found out management. It was like management almost sabotaged the situation, man. It, was, it wasn't, wasn't pretty. Man. So. Man, that's 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 crazy. You got to make sure your management is tight because you don't want to end up in a situation where you're collateral damage. Now, you mentioned my home state that Breathless was taken off in North Carolina. And this was back yes, in the days where certain records would pop in certain regions and you could make some right. good touring money just touring those regions. Like, let's say your That's hit right. is big in the Midwest. You could tour all the Midwestern states, make good money, yeah. tour all the Southeast yeah. states, make good money. And then if you money, tear man. up those regions, then a guy by the name of Mr. Al Heyman may come knocking and say, hey, <laughs> they want you to come on a little ditty that we like to call the Budweiser Superfest. Yes, sir. I was looking forward. We, we had a chance to meet Al Heyman in Memphis, man. A great guy, and we were actually we were actually going to be working with Al Heyman. We were going to do some, you know, he was, was going to get us booked and and all of that. But the crazy thing is, is that this whole management situation we had, man, it it messed everything up. It did, and and we didn't get it. it wasn't that we, like we got blackballed, but nobody wanted to deal with this with this this team, this management team we had. So we finally broke ties, and I was so personally. Um, I was personally wounded, you know, with the situation. I didn't, you know, I'm thinking, and we, I've written, I put my blood, sweat, and tears in, into my music, man. And, uh, and, you know, and to be, to be dropped, didn't know why. Um, it, it messed me up. So here comes the record label, the A&R cat who signed us. He was like, yo, man, I, I you are too good. Why don't you come? Let's get you a solo record with the label let's bring you back solo and um and then we can you know we'll rebuild everything after that and uh i was distraught man i didn't want to do it without my brothers i didn't want to and because uh, you know we did this together and um <laughs> if i knew then what i know now <laughs> i would have went on and done it but um but we you're right man touring we were set to tour everywhere we were going to jump on a tour with the gap band we were going to jump on tour with um, with uh, Keith Sweat. We we're going to do a lot. We were we were setting ready to go. Right, and you mentioned Jerry Lavert at the top. I'm sure Lavert was probably looking at you guys too. Like these guys are something serious. Absolutely, man. They dug our music, and uh, and I had a, and like I said, I had a chance to meet Gerald, man, and 
And dude, he was like, I'm a fan, dude. I'm a fan of y'all. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm this little country boy from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, I'm thinking, you know, these cats known, these cats are known all over the planet, man. This is Levert, you know, they have the father's legend, you know, family legend, man. And um, and he was digging my music, man. He was digging songs that I wrote, you know. That's a great feeling, you know, to um to do something that you know, that somebody else really appreciates that the masses appreciate, man. So, yeah, so I was a huge fan of Levert's, man. And uh, of course, was greatly saddened when I heard, you know, heard about Gerald, man. And, uh, you know, because we had a, you know, we just kind of had a had a connection. He dug my music, I dug his, man. And, and it was, it was cool like that, you know. Right, right. And you mentioned when you guys were over in the UK doing shows, I'm sure you guys probably got to hear a lot of the Brit Soul stuff before it broke over here in the US, like Loose Ends, 52nd Street, oh, Soul to Soul, oh, yeah. Five Star, yeah. before they became household names over here in the States. Absolutely, man. When we were at Prestatin, they were all, those groups, they were all very young. You know, they were very young, kind of like us. And, uh, and, and it was great just to get a chance to mix and mix with, um, with a completely different style of R&B. It's R&B, but it was, they had a different flavor to theirs. And, uh, and so um, at Prestatin, man, um, you know, we went over there, Bobby Womack, we met Bobby Womack. And he, you know, of course, I grew up listening to Bobby Womack. We met Bobby Womack when we first landed in London, got to our hotel, and he gave me the best advice that, <laughs> that I think I could have gotten while I was there. He came out of the elevator and I'm looking and my father was like, oh my God, this is Bobby Womack. My dad went with us. You know, he was he was traveling with us. Bobby Womack. And Bobby was like, hey man, um, I, are, are y'all Mason? And we were like, you know about us? And he was like, yeah, we y'all are going to be on the show with me tonight. And so Roy Ayers, you know, the jazz xylophonist, he was there. Um, but Bobby Womack, man, was like, yo, man, he said, y'all do me, y'all do yourself a favor while you're here. Enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy this food and all of that, but don't drink the water. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. He said, he said, that's the best advice I can give you while you're here. And he was right. Cause you know, the irrigation system way back then, it wasn't like it is now we have pure water, but Bobby Womack, man, was one of the best musicians and singers that, you know, that we, we grew up listening to this cat, man. So, wow. uh, yeah. So getting a chance to hear these cats, man, like soul to soul and all of that, man, it was, it was bomb, man. Yeah. Because you, you mentioned how UK R&B was a different vibe because a lot of the blacks over there migrated to the UK from the Caribbean. So it has that reggae right. flavor to it. And then also during this time before R&B became commercially available in the UK on Kiss FM, a lot of those radio yeah. stations where you could hear R&B or soul was underground pirate radio. Right. They would pop right. up where it might be here for a couple of hours and then their version of FCC may shut it down and you may have to go down the dial to listen to it yeah. again. So it's crazy to yeah. see how over there, they listen to what we do for the template mm -hmm. and the blueprint and then add right. their own spin to it. Cause if you look at the likes of George Michael, Sam Smith, Boy George, Adele, Phil Collins, yeah. We could go on and yeah. on on the list of UK singers that were heavily influenced by US R&B. You know, um, it's crazy that you say that. And I didn't realize just how big black music was in the UK until we got there. We, we landed in Heathrow Airport, man, this is the truth. We landed in Heathrow 
And we had the record label, <laughs> Electra had their two reps there to meet us, a cat named Fred and a cat named Zoe. They came to meet us there. And um, we had a chance to meet them and, and, uh, and they were getting us, getting us checked in, getting our luggage and we were going through all the customs and all those things, man, bro. By the time we got off that plane and got out into the into the portal, getting ready to try to go to our cars, crowds started gathering. People found out we were there. Our record had just got released. People were finding out we were there. We got to our hotel, checked in. The next night, we had an an, an interview on the BBC at the BBC in the Tower. I hear our interview is going out all over the country of, uh, of Great Britain. It's going everywhere. It's going Paris and, and London and Germany. It's all over the place. We did a two hour interview as a new artist, came down that long elevator and got to the bottom and got mobbed. It was nuts. Black music, black artists in, in, in the UK were, it was, it, I felt like Michael Jackson. That's, that's how they made you feel. They appreciated black artists. You know, you hear things like the Beatles and they were like, man, our favorite artist was Aretha Franklin. That was, you know, I'm thinking the Beatles, but that's what they did. They vibed on our music and mm -hmm. been doing it ever since. Yeah, and uh, Stock, Aiken and Waterman with their success with Kylie Minogue, Rick Ashley just pretty much took what they saw and heard from Motown, and just added yeah. their own spin. Now, when you guys no, over there, flavor. did you guys also do um, Top of the Pops? We did, we actually did. Uh, and it was it was a blast, and we had some we had great ratings, man. Through Top of the Pops, man, uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was always uh, when we were there, it was always we were always getting mobbed, mobbed everywhere. So doing uh, you know doing the the Top of the Pops uh, situation was beautiful, just like it was doing Solid Soul, and then being on the BBC and. And uh, and it was it was just an incredible experience, man. Mm -hmm. Top of incredible. the pops for those that don't know, that was the UK's equivalent to American Bandstand, where they would take American your top Bandstand. thirty or forty records yeah. and you would perform yeah. or lip sync. And it was an institution <laughs> in the UK, and I believe also at the same time, Jeffrey Daniel had a UK version of Soul Train called Six Twenty Soul Train. Right, he did. He did, and he also um, he was also um, had a little bit to do with Solid Soul, which was the television show we were on over there, uh, along with Top of the Pops. He did Solid Soul as well, and so um, and that was their version of Soul Train and Solid Gold mix. So they called it Solid Soul, and uh, and so um, Jeffrey Daniels had made a you know he'd made a name for himself, man. They, that guy was an icon an icon over in Great Britain, man, over in the UK. So, mm -hmm. yep, Jeffrey Daniels, people, man. for those that don't know, Shalomar, and he, yes, along sir. with Casper and some of the other lockers, were the ones that taught Michael Jackson the moonwalk. And his performance uh, from Top of the Pops was the first time that people saw him do the moonwalk. And this was prior right. to Michael Jackson doing the Motown 25. I believe it was 83, I want to say, when the Motown 25 Absolutely. came out. Absolutely. All right, Absolutely, so, man. So we're going to fast forward a bit. So how did you, you were able to let go of that hurt of getting dropped because of a vendetta that the label had against management and say, it wasn't my fault and I'm just going to turn it over to God and just let go and just not be held back because of this? 
it was, I, I'll be honest, man, it was very difficult because I, I, that's all I've ever known um, in terms of what I felt I was called to do was sing. And it was difficult to know um, that, you know, what you did to get there, we worked our butts off to get there. And then it could just end so, you know, so abruptly. It was difficult to swallow, it was a difficult pill to swallow. But, but uh, I was raised um, to, uh, my dad put it like this, their mother kept them in church and I kept my foot in there behind. So we had a balance of discipline and, uh, and spirituality that, um, that I took very seriously. I took it all very seriously, man. And, uh, and as far as I can remember, I've always known God was with me as far as I can remember. I'm talking about clear back to three, three years old. I've always had a, I've always had an affinity to be uh, in the house of God. I've always, I've always loved scripture. I've always just kind of known that God knows me. And so I've always kept in communication with him. And, uh, and so it was, even though it was difficult to swallow the pill of being dropped and it felt like rejection, you know, um, you know, um, it was, it became easier as I just said, Lord, you know, this must have happened for a reason. There had to have been a reason that this happened where I'm concerned. And, uh, and so I, I kind of grew up singing, um, singing. I never liked choirs at all. And so, but I found myself singing in them when I was younger. Um, but as I got older, I didn't like choir music at all. It just didn't appeal to me. Um, but I loved God. And so I, you know, I sang solos in church, man, and, and uh, became a worship leader. Um, as I was in college, you know, became a worship leader, man, while on the campus at Oklahoma State. Um, and um, after that, <clears throat> when I graduated college, became a worship leader at a big local church here. And, uh, and I just kind of stayed involved with all of it, even while I was, you know, even when I would come home from being in Memphis or, or from being on the road, I found myself back in the house of God. I, I, you know, that's just always been a part of my life. It's part of my culture. And so it's to be in, in his presence. So it just made it a little bit easier for me to make those kinds of transitions, man. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned uh, you're singing choirs, singing gospel. So what was your take on when you started to hear the R&B starting to seep into gospel? We could go as far back as Andre Crouch and yeah. uh, Rance Allen Project with Rance Allen, the late Rance Allen sure. and then his brothers. Sure. But I think the groups that really took gospel from here to here in the eighties and meshed R&B with it was right. Take Six, The Winans, Clark Sisters, yeah. and Commission. Commission, uh, man. Listen, I thought this. This is me. Um, I thought it was the most brilliant thing any artist could have ever done because um, I always, I've always believed that God. I mean, that God wants, mu music is, it is universal. He doesn't want it to be, it is universal. And so when you, and I've always seen it that way. And to be honest with you, I hated the way, what we would call gospel music. I hated the way it was marketed. I hated the way it was, it was presented. I hated the way that it was, it was viewed. I hated the um, feeling like you'd be pigeonholed if you got into that particular um, black gospel market. I hated all of it because to me, I've never seen it uh, staying only supposed to be stuck in the four walls of the church. 
I've never wanted that. I never wanted to be pigeonholed. I never wanted any of that. So the way I write music and to do music, um, my music is, I feel, is appealing to, to any, you know, in church, out of church, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I thought the infusion was so long overdue. Kirk Franklin was humongous as a younger, when he was younger, at really making it even more popular. Commission, those are my, all them cats is my friends, from Fred to, to Mitch Jones to Carl to, to Keith, you know, those are my buddies, man. Those, so when they were coming up, you know, Wayman and myself would bring, Wayman would bring them to Tulsa every year. Every year, Commission would come here annually and we'd have writing sessions and recording sessions and they do big concerts. And I was involved in all of it. So I've always loved to have the perspective that music is supposed to be outside of the walls of, of the house of God, period. Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't minister just in the synagogues. As a matter of fact, his greatest impact was on the outside. You know, when he would eat, and, and, and dine with those who the church didn't, who the synagogues didn't see as righteous folks. So right. I've, I loved that. I loved when the winings and them cats came. I loved it, man. Right, I'm looking for more of it. Yeah, because I could attest to that. My father's a pastor down in South Carolina and grew oh, wow. up on okay. the traditional gospel like Williams Brothers, Jackson Southern Ales, Canton Spirituals. Right. Mighty Claus right. Doors, a.k.a. AM Gospel Radio. But when I right. first heard the <laughs> Winans Return album and saw that Teddy Riley did the production on it, knowing how white hot Teddy was with yeah, Guy yeah. and everything. And then, of yeah. course, the lineage from Charlie Wilson to Aaron Hall, how Aaron Man. completely yeah. sounds like Charlie. It really exposed right. gospel for me to where it's not just for old folks, it's for us too. And then you mentioned commission and I had a chance to interview yeah. Michael Jones and I was telling him how boys to men, go to see all of those nineties R&B groups reference them as a, their yeah. frame point that right. we model ourselves after you guys. Yeah, absolutely, man. That was, to me, it was, it's genius. And I think God is, I think personally, that God is going to do it even bigger. I mean, so now, you know, you got cats like Lecrae and, and a lot of underground cats, man, that are doing music for the king, for the kingdom, that are incredible artists. And now you have a genre now of praise and worship with Hill Songs and Bethel and these big ministries that praise and worship was for a long time. It was only inside the four walls of the church. But man, now when Hill songs and it started really blowing up and they praise and worship, you can hear it on the radio every day now. And it wasn't that way because it was just like it was almost like choir music and music from choirs. They it was only played a certain time on a Sunday morning um, and it was only um, or it was only inside the four walls of the church. Now, man, there's no there's no walls now um, and there's no ceiling in terms of how the how the music of of the kingdom of god is like it's everywhere now and uh, and i love this i'm i've been waiting for this cuz i again i I've, I've never been a guy even though i grew up in church i did not like the way these things were presented because to me it excluded too many people you know what i mean and god i believe christ came to die for the whole world so not just the folks in church so I get, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, because, you know, for those of us that was raised in the church way back when, there was a time where drums was considered a no-no. 
in church. <laughs> right. In some churches, <laughs> women couldn't wear pants or lipstick. Right. So it was I'm all about good. being by the book and being by tradition. But as we see times and things do change, and you mentioned all of the contemporary gospel artists that's out now saying that yeah. we love God, but we don't want to be stuck and chained by tradition. We want to go that's out right. and reach whoever, whether it be somebody on the side of the street or someone sitting first row in the pool pit on Sundays. It's the same message. Right. It's all about going out and delivering it to who we know needs it the most. That's absolutely right. And I'm, I'm really grateful for this time and, 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 um, and this era, even though we, it feels like we're living in some very strange times and we are. Um, but I think that the universal um, the universal um, gift of music. I mean, I'm, you know, and, and we'll talk about this, I guess, when I was on The Voice, I watched it a couple of seasons ago and I'm watching cats singing Israel Houghton songs on The Voice and I'm hearing people sing, you know, uh, some contemporary, um, you know, uh, contemporary Christian music stuff on The Voice and on American Idol. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this thing has really, you know, the, the message has really, is really reaching the masses in, in media now at a completely different place. So it was, uh, it's, it's, it's refreshing and, uh, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful now um, that now when I release some stuff, it's going to be, I, I don't have to con be concerned about it, me being pigeonholed. I don't have to be concerned about that now because I don't think there's a ceiling anymore. I don't think there's a, just a place just for this. Um, and whoever I work with, you know, in with management, all those things, I'm going to make sure you when, when we get to marketing what's coming, do not send me to just this. That's not who I am. And if you can't work with that, then I'm good. We'll find somebody else because, you know, I think the message is supposed to be for everyone, man. Right, right. We're going to get into the voice in a minute, but I want to talk about we mentioned Hanson and Color Me Bad, how both of yeah. those acts from Oklahoma, huge. I had a chance to interview uh, Kevin from Color Me Bad, and he was telling me how when I Want to Sex You Up was released on the New Jack City soundtrack, Cassandra right. Mills and Giant had to rush them into the studio to put out the CMB album because everybody was just buying the single or the soundtrack for New Jack City just for I Want to Sex just You for Up. That single. Crossover, pop, R&B hit, one of the top yeah. 10 singles of 91, and then Hanson exploded with um bob and middle of nowhere and when right. they put out this time around and they saw how you know with backstreet boys and nsync and the whole boy band phenomenon right. was coming they were like no we're not that we right <laughs> yeah yeah they have um these guys are you know when you talk about hansen I mean, these guys are all musicians and they're songwriters they play their, they play, they're a band, you know, and you have these cats from Color Me Bad, uh, Omzi and these guys um, that were, you know, all in the studio writing, you know, with, with those cats, Kevin and those guys from, from Color Me Bad. I mean, that just goes to show you that the rich history of music in this state, it's incredible. I mean, it, it's absolutely incredible. There was a young lady two seasons ago uh, on The Voice, her, her, Grandmother's one of my wife. My wife manages a store here in Tulsa, in, in a very, very posh part of Tulsa called Utica Square. And my wife, she manages a store. And 
or one of her customers is this girl's grandmother. And so that girl's from Tulsa. I mean, she's, she's from, from, from our city and state here. So a lot of folks, um, but I still don't think that our city and state gets the recognition that it's supposed to get yet. And especially um, in with, uh, with people of color. And I think that this year in 2021, it's gonna change all of that. Yeah, because like you mentioned earlier, Oklahoma's more known on the countryside. I'll be remiss if right. being mentioned, you know, Carrie Underwood. And of course, the biggest gospel artist of all time, Mr. Garth Brooks. Right. <laughs> that guy is incredible. And uh, he's and he's a cool cat, man. I had a chance to meet Garth and his wife, Trisha Yearwood. Had a Who chance can to burn? Meet yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's. You know, that's what this this city, matter of fact, when we first went to New York, them folks were asking us, they said, well, where are you from? We're from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And they looked at me and they said, there's black people in Tulsa. I'm like, yeah, we're from Tulsa. Well, okay, well, we know the Gap Band's from there, but is, is it that many blacks? And I, they said, well, what is it like? And I said, well, Tulsa's beautiful. It's a metropolis. You know, it's we have cities and buildings. Y'all do? Y'all don't have teepees where Indians live on territory? And I'm like, nah, man. I mean, I'm sure we have, we do have reservations, but they're few and far between. And they're way out, you know, in the middle of the country. But man, you come to Tulsa to blow your mind. It's beautiful out here. And folks, they literally thought we were still walking around, you know, with tumbleweeds blowing down the street and all of that. <laughs> and and I, I will say in some of the smaller cities and towns in Tulsa, yeah. In Oklahoma, yeah, you could probably see some of that. But and it's beautiful out here, man. Yeah, a lot beautiful. of people just have big misconceptions about places that they never been. I have a personal experience of Oklahoma. I was driving across country from North Carolina to New Mexico when I was moving out, and my car ended up breaking down in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Actually, ended up overheating. Oh my Shawnee. god! So we had to end up sitting <laughs> at a rest stop for maybe two or three hours to let the car cool off, and then we we're able right. to keep going forty west onto Albuquerque. But from what yeah. I saw about Oklahoma as a state. And it's very beautiful. And then, of course, yeah. it also helped once the thunder moved from Seattle to Oklahoma City uh, and, and yes, brought sir. that influx in because I was surprised at how well the thunder was taken in Oklahoma. Like how we mentioned earlier, how Oklahoma is a football state is either Sooners, yes. Cowboys, yeah. Oklahoma State, Cowboy. or Dallas Cowboys. So I was just surprised right. at how well the NBA has responded to Oklahoma City. Man, I was um, telling my wife the other day, you know, we've had some of the best in the NBA come through here and play from, you know, from Durant to Westbrook to the Beard, uh, you know, Paul George, you know, uh, Chris Paul. I mean, we, we've, we've had some players come come through here, man. And, and you know, we're rebuilding again. Um, but you're absolutely right. The 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 wealth and the attendance in our state has grown like crazy. Oklahoma City, man, when they got prepared for that team to move there, they built all kinds of stuff. They rebuilt downtown. They added hotel. I mean, it's it's just beautiful. And I'm there, like I said, I'm there every weekend down in Oklahoma City, uh, which is where Norman is. And uh, and it's just amazing the uh, what that team has brought to our state. And uh, and you know, people from here, we travel up to the to the games and, and all of that, man. So. It's pretty cool. It's only an hour difference between uh, travel time between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. So, you know, we get to get there, man, in no time. Yeah, but I'm sure there's a lot of oil and gas money in Oklahoma, if you know what I mean. That's where that's the bulk of the money here. Some J.R. Ewing. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's some of that old money too, that old, old oil and gas money. Yeah. It's, and, uh, you know, we have, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're known, they're one of the wealthiest families. There are two wealthy families here. One is called the Kaiser family. I don't know if you're familiar. Kaiser Permanente, they have yeah. businesses all around the U.S., but the Kaiser family uh, is from Tulsa. And then there's another huge family called the Zaro, Z-A-R-R-O-W family. They are, they're, I'm talking about multi-billionaires right here. And they got their start in oil, oil and gas and land. And so we've got some wealth in this state, a lot of it. Yeah. And I believe Sonic is headquartered in Oklahoma as well, if it serves me yep, correct. It is. It is. It is. There's a, you know, there are quite a, there's quite a few industries that's um, they're, they're building headquarters here, or there are some that are based out of here. Um, you know, we were in, we were in the running for Tesla moving one of its plants here, uh, right here in Tulsa, man. And uh, it was between Tulsa and Austin, Texas. And uh, so we ended up getting a, uh, we, we've got a, a huge shop of Tesla's not too far from my house. But we didn't get the plant, but we got a we we have a you know a couple of Tesla places around. So yeah, so but Tulsa is Tulsa and Oklahoma, man, they're they're it's known. It's known around uh, around the place. And this year, 2021, when we celebrate the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa race, they call it the race massacre now. We call it the race riot, because that's what we've always called it. There are all kinds of folks coming here. And I'm talking about all kinds. I was told a week and a half ago by a good buddy of mine who has a shop right down on Greenwood where a lot of the, the action took place. He has an insurance firm down there. He said, man, LeBron was down here with his crew. Oprah was down here. John Legend's been here. These folks are coming to get a taste of what it felt like to be in the city. And they came to the, to the, um, the uh, Centennial Museum they went to Greenwood and walked around in the buildings and walked into the Greenwood um, Chamber of Commerce. They walked into the Greenwood Cultural Center to just get a taste of what was happening, man, and what it felt like and to get that history. So mm -hmm. our, our city is about to really, really blow up. Right. And so, that kind of brings back my point how the dollar stays in the community longer when you have everything that's right there. Because think about the black dollar that was being circulated within the community when it was up and thriving. And then of course you had the green book yeah. during that time where for those of you that don't know, there were places <laughs> in certain parts of the country that it didn't want us there. So you had to have right. that book to make sure this is where you go. That's eat. right. This is where you go sleep. That's right. This is where you go get That's gas right. when you're driving across Absolutely. country. Because like I said earlier, you don't want to be caught in certain parts of the country with a flat, no gas. And you see that flag. If you're from the South, you know what flag I'm talking about that says you're not welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's real, man. I mean that that is a that is a cold hard reality. That's that's what was going on here. That's what was going on around the nation. But man, here it was it was quite um, you know, in Black Wall Street, there was matter of fact, my son, my son's 27. He's named after me. The kid is a prolific songwriter, drummer, singer, musician. And they're doing a project right now and they call it, uh, and the name of their um, production is called Fila, Fire in Little Africa. They considered Black Wall Street Little Africa because there was so much money that circulated 
in the northern part of Tulsa, and it did not. They didn't share it with. They didn't share it past a, a street. It was from like Admiral and North. Admirals is a, one of the main streets uh, that separates North and South. Considered anything south of Admiral is South Tulsa. Anything north of Admiral is North Tulsa. And no money went past Admiral. And we all had money. There was plenty of money. And and so, but down in that district, man, where where the Greenwood area is, man, it was buzzing. And we weren't giving up that dollar. And that that infuriated them, man. They wanted that money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they wanted to control every part of the city. And uh, it just wasn't happening. Right. So, Right. And we mentioned Leon Russell at the beginning. I believe he wrote Superstar. The Carpenters did it first. And then, of course, made famous by Luther. Yeah, absolutely. He did. Yeah, he, Again, the guy was a songwriter and a half. I mean, he was just, um, you know, he reminded me a lot of Joe Cocker in the sense that these guys wrote some great songs. And it didn't matter that these guys were, you know, were white or black. It didn't matter. A song, a great song is a great song. And so Leon Russell, man, you know, uh, you know, he he passed recently, and they had a huge celebration here from Tul- here for him in Tulsa. Um, they packed out the Oral Roberts University Maybe Center, and uh, in honor of celebrating his legacy, his music, and all those things, man. But that cat, man, was from right here, man, from right here in our in our great city, man, right here. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, the studio that he had down on Third Street, it's down on Third and Utica. It was it was an old church. So he converted a church into a recording studio. It's called the Church Studios. That's where the Gap Band recorded. I've recorded in there several times. Wayman and I have recorded in there. Uh, Charlie Wilson's been in there. Fred Hammond and I have been in there. I mean, it's it's a prominent spot. And so that whole street right there, right there where the Church Studios are, they're making that into an arts district as well. So Tulsa is uh, it's Tulsa's blazing, man. It's blazing right now. Mm, now for, for, for people but, like yeah. him. Yeah. Now with the voice, how did you end up auditioning? Was it more of let me just make a submission video for fun and not thinking I'll get on? Or how did that come about? Man, this is crazy. Um, I was I really uh, I watched the voice. I like the voice. I'm a fan of the show. Always have been those reality shows like, you know, American Idol because, you know, it has to do with music. I I was literally man as a friend of mine as a keyboardist. His name is Fred Smith. He lives in L.A. He married Miracle Holloway. And Miracle Holloway was singing with the group Jade, R&B group Jade. Uh, and you probably remember them. Don't walk away, boy. Yeah, I that, had a chance to interview Joy. Okay, so Miracle was one of the was one of the uh, girls in the uh, in the group, and they moved back here to Tulsa because Fred played keyboards at one of the churches, and he and I played together for years. And uh, and so uh, he married Miracle. They moved to L.A. and then she wanted to come back here to go to go to school at Oral Roberts or either Raymond, which is a Bible college. She was, you know, changing her life and all of that. Long story short, she got on The Voice season 17 and she made it several. She made it to the top 12. She was on Gwen Stefani's team. So, um, you know, we rooted for her and all of that stuff. She left uh, the show and moved to uh, Chicago and uh, and she called me one day and uh and then she sent me an inbox she sent me an inbox and, and i didn't see it so she called me she said hey man i just wanted to touch base with you and ask you if you'd be interested in being on the voice and i said nah i'm good uh, i don't no, nah, I'm, I'm cool uh, and the reason i said that uh is because 
I auditioned before for X Factor. As a matter of fact, I auditioned for the very last season X Factor had <clears throat> in Kemper Arena down in Kansas City. Made the show. I made made I made it through all the auditions, but it was and it was grueling to be outside standing in those lines and waiting and see if you're gonna get caught. I, dude, I, I was like, yo, I, I ain't doing this no more. And so she asked me about it and I immediately turned her down. I said, no, I'm good. I'm not interested. I said, I don't really have anything to prove to anybody. And she said, no, don't look at it like that, man. You know, don't look at it. She said, I just think you would be, you're so good. You know, I think you should do it. I was like, Miracle, I'm cool. She said, and she said, well, here's why I'm asking. They're going to be in Oklahoma and they're going to be a, do a big audition in Oklahoma City. You would, she said, but even more specifically, they're going to come to Tulsa. And if I recommend you, you're not going to have to stand in line. You, it'll be a private audition with the chief casting agent, uh, Michelle McNulty, with her agency. She does all the casting all around the U.S., all of those thousands and thousands of people. She listens to them one by one by one. This woman is incredible. And so I said, well, in that case, if it's going to be a private audition and they're coming here, um, let me let me reconsider. Let me think about that. I said, let me let me call my wife and let me let me talk to her about it and see what she feels because I you know I tr I try to run things by my wife. It's my you know she's my uh, she can be my uh, a good good buffer for me um, you know and so um, we she and I talked about it. She said, okay, in the meantime, do me a favor, just just send it to me send me your email and send me all of your social media links and all of that stuff. And while I said, let me call you back. I'll call I said, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. Call my wife and Miracle had found all my stuff. Sent my stuff anyway to Michelle, <laughs> to Michelle <laughs> McNulty. Maybe she had it. Maybe she had a feeling I was going to call and say, yes. I called her back and I said, yo, um, my wife said, why not? You know, you have nothing to lose. They're coming to you. Go do it. You, you got, you got nothing to lose. You know, so, Okay, I think it'd be a great experience just to go do the audition, you know, do the private audition. Man, I got, uh, by the time I got back on with Miracle, um, I she said, okay, I'm just going to tell you, you know, forgive me, don't be mad at me, but I went ahead and sent the information up to Michelle. She was very excited. I sh she saw a picture of you. She said, oh my God, this guy is how old? <laughs> you know, my God, he looks like a baby. He'd be great for the show. Oh my God. So I said, she said, so I sent this information to her and she already responded with the with what I just told you. And I said, well, okay, so you got my social media, you got everything. She said, I don't need anything else. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me send you this. Stay on the phone. I sent her a link of me sending that song written by Leon Russell. I did a song for you, the Donny Hathaway version. I sent that to her while Miracle and I were on the phone and she immediately sent it to Michelle. Five minutes later, Michelle sends Miracle an email and like, OMG, he has got to be on the show. Yes. Tell him yes. Please have him show up for this audition. That's how it, that's how it happened. I wasn't going to go. I wasn't interested. Um, and um, it ended up, man, I ended up, they ended up not doing the audition in Tulsa. They ended up having to move everything to Oklahoma City. And so that was another opportunity for me to say, now I'm cool. I'm not going to do it then. But, you know, I had already, I had already, you know, gotten it in my, in my heart that, okay, well, let's go do this, man. 
And bro, this is this is a true story. The morning I left, the, the evening I left, uh, it was February 22nd, which is my wife's birthday, is the day I was supposed to do the, the that's the, sorry, that's the day they were gonna do the big open call audition at, uh, at, the, um, at the big arena out there. I wasn't doing that. My private audition was gonna be February 21st. I walked out my door that night, had my suitcase, going to my car, and literally, man, I heard it was like the enemy's voice. He said, what do you think you're doing? You ain't got no business going down there. You don't need to be doing this. You're too old. Nobody wants to hear you. You ain't got nothing to say. And you just need to turn around and go back in the house. This ain't, this, this is not even worth it, bro. I literally turned around, went back to my back door. And as soon as I grabbed the door handle, it was like I heard the Holy Spirit say, you didn't ask me for this door to be opened. I opened it for you. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to walk away just because you heard that. And I stopped, man. And I turned back around went and got my car. Drove to Oklahoma City, got up the next morning, killed that audition, killed it. I mean, it is what it is. I was in good health. My voice was clean and clear. I killed that audition. That woman got so excited, brother. She was like, oh my God, we have, I can't wait to get you. Okay, you're done here. Go upstairs. And I went upstairs and did like three interviews, you know, and they were asking me a bunch of questions. When I came back downstairs, man, they said, you'll get an email within 48 hours. Man, by the time I walked out of that studio where they had the audition and got in my car, that email was sitting on that, sitting on my, in my email saying, welcome to The Voice, you know, season 19. And that was in February and we were supposed to fly out in March, but COVID hit real hard. So we didn't fly out to July. And that's how I got on the show. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't go looking for it, man. It came to me, man. That's, that's crazy in saying how you almost blocked your blessing. I did, man. It was crazy, bro. I, you know, um, you know, the music industry is strange in the sense that um, the younger you are, the better opportunity, because at least that's what it appears to be. But I know personally that there are a lot of people my age, you know, and even older that are killing in the music industry. Charlie Wilson is, again, this guy is 59 now. I'm sorry, 69. Forgive me. Um, just turned 69, man. And he's at the top of his game. And this is a true story. Charlie called me uh, literally about four years ago. I'm sitting in my home. We had just moved. My wife and I just got, got this nice home and my kids were helping me unpack. So they were over helping me unboxing. So I bought them pizza. We're sitting on the couch. This is a true story. My phone rings and it's a buddy of mine that played bass for Natalie Cole. You know, when she was alive and she was, and they were younger, he was her bass player. He's from Tulsa. <laughs> We're sprinkled in the music industry a lot of places, but you just don't hear our names too much. He calls me, man. And I said, you know, I said, and I, we call him Fuzzy. And I said, I said, what's up, Fuzz? How you doing, man? And he didn't say anything. I heard this other voice on the line, man. And I heard this laugh. The guy started laughing. And he said, he said, Fuzzy, he, don't even, he doesn't even know who this is, man. He don't know who this is. And I heard him laugh again. I said, wait a minute. Is this Charlie? Because I, you know, I know him and I know that laugh. I said, is this, is this Uncle Charlie? And he fell out laughing. He said, Yes, yeah, me, baby boy. How you doing, man? And I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? What you know? And I'm on speaker with the guy, right? My kids are sitting next to me on both sides. And uh, and so 
my kids are freaking out. Oh my God, Charlie Wilson's calling my dad, you know? And we're talking, man. And Charlie said to me, he said, babe boy, you know, I've been through hell. My, you, you, you know, my, I'm gonna tell you my testimony. And he talked to me for an hour, telling me about his experience with life and how he almost died, prostate cancer. He lost a lung because of how he abused his body with cocaine and, and cigarettes and liquor and all those things. And he said, I told God, if you just give me one more chance, give me a chance at life, give me a chance at music, I'm going to give you, I'm going to shout you out, I'm going to give you the praise. And he said, because of what, when I, when R. Kelly, R. Kelly did that, that, that big comeback record on him, that um, uh, first name Charlie, last name Wilson, mm-hmm. that was him and R. Kelly did that record. He said, after that record took off, it was all me. I did all my own stuff. And I'm, I'm calling you and telling you this because I'm telling you, you not, you ain't, haven't even started yet. So if you think that you're past the age that the music industry respects, you just getting started, man. Look at what I'm doing. And I want to do some work with you. And that, dude, that lit me back up. And that was four or five years ago. And that got me like that, it, it like gave me life again. So he, I owe a lot to that guy, man. He inspired me and I believe God used him to, um, to remind me that Abraham was, you know, <laughs> Abraham was almost a hundred when God fulfilled his promise to him, to him, you know, um, and, and, and Caleb was 85 years old and still had the health of a 25 year old and said at 85, okay, now I'm gonna go take my mountain. Give me my mountain. I'm ready for it. You know, it, it just, God has a timing for everything. And so Charlie helped me to understand you ain't too old for this, man. Look at, look at what I'm doing. And he's touring with Bruno Mars and all these cats, man. So I'm still ready to go, man. I am. Yeah. It's a reason in the season, how you mentioned how the industry is pretty much a young person's game and how older acts are regulated to urban AC and pigeonholed and doing certain shows and not really getting that same exposure right. as their younger counterparts, right. how right. Charlie's able to stay relevant with all the people that he's worked with from R. Kelly, Snoop, Pharrell, Bruno, and be able yeah. to transcend generations to where you say, hey, I listened to him as the Gap ba- when he was in the Gap Band. I listened to his solo right. stuff and right. everybody knows Uncle Charlie. So how do you think older, or should I say seasoned artists, able to navigate an industry where they reward and they tend to look at the young, and then also looking at now with streaming and everything's digital to be able to compete with the new landscape and it's different now compared to what it was in the eighties? You know, um, I honestly think that I, I think now, just like you said, with everything streaming at this point, I think the playing field is wide open. It comes out, it really just kind of comes down to taking your gift, listening to what's what's relevant, and finding a way to be creative enough to I don't want to lose the audience of people that I know I grew up with uh, that grew up knowing me and listening to me. I don't want to lose them. I want to keep them but I want to gain my son's audience. I want to gain my daughter's audience. I want to gain that generation as well. And this is the truth, man. Um, the record that my brothers and I did, we wrote, we wrote that stuff, you know, 
85. It came out 87, right? 85, 86. It came out in 1987, man. Um, I'm told, and when I listen to, the, to that music, that music then is relevant in terms of its message, its, its creation to right now. When I heard when I heard Bruno Mars and you know these cats 24 Karat and, and and when I hear some of this music, I'm like, yo, that's 80s stuff. We were yeah, doing they, that stuff. Yep, yeah, they studied pretty much all of the 80s stuff, New Jack Swing, Boogie Era, that whole shebang. The whole the whole thing. And so it gave me enough peace and enough um, you know, reassurance and affirmation that what I was doing when I was, you know, when I was younger. Is relevant for now. Get wait till wait till this stuff that I'm doing now comes out. It's gonna be, um, you know, I'm I'm more mature. I got my ear to the ground. My son, uh, my son's one heck of a songwriter. I got a nephew right now in Los Angeles. His name is Kristen Mason. He just did Mally Music, produced his whole record, got two number ones on Mally Music right now. So when you hear Mally Music's music, that's my nephew that that produced and wrote and produced some tracks with him. And so these cats are working with me and uh, and and I'm so I'm keeping my ear to the ground. Like like, for instance, I just heard Dietrich Hatton's new joint called The Sick World. Brother, that joint is trap and R&B with the with the spirit and the flavor lyrically of gospel. It is off the chain. Love that. Right. Listen to that record every day, probably five or six times a day. But. The, the Dietrich has stayed very relevant because he keeps his ear to the ground and he stays in the mix of what's happening and stays true to himself. And that's what I believe that's what Uncle Charlie's been doing. And I believe that's that's what I'm doing. And uh, and so I got some things in the works, man. Yeah, we're definitely some, uh, looking forward to what you got coming up when it's all done, when the ink dries, when the dust settles. You got an open spot to come back on Beyond the Album Cover. And yes, I sir. would be remiss if I didn't mention that I think Brian Big Country Reads from Oklahoma as well, correct? That's right. That's right. You played uh, played ball up at, up at, up at I think it was Oklahoma State. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He played at Oklahoma State and they did a documentary on uh, maybe a year or two ago where it was a yeah. girl that grew up in Canada that was a fan of Vancouver Grizzlies before they moved to Memphis and yeah. how she searched high and low looking for him and she was able to find him like she went back in the deep woods. Right. <laughs> to find like, remember yeah. when I told you about there's some places where you don't want to get caught dead at? That was probably That's one right. of them where somebody could have put a shotgun <laughs> with a no trespassing sign. <laughs> Man, I tell you what, um, this is a, it's an interesting place I live in, um, but it's changing. The landscape is changing. Um, you know, these times we live in right now, man, are very, are very different <clears throat> and they're very, but it's necessary because there's there are things that we are learning and experiencing now that my kids kids don't have to um, don't not have, because there are changes being made now. You know, things are not just being exposed just for the sake of being exposed. They're exposed so that there can be change brought to it. <clears throat> so I'm excited, you know, about I'm excited about tomorrow. I really am. Yeah, I think we're headed towards uh, truth and reconciliation in this country. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. If you know, you know what I'm talking about when I say truth yes, and sir, reconciliation. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, man. Absolutely, now, man. That Mason album, <clears throat> probably a collector's item if you got it. So if you got that album, consider yourself <laughs> lucky. I want a copy of it. If I can find it, I'll give you my price off <laughs> wax. And if it's on streaming, I'll be even more happy if it gets put on streaming. <laughs> because just uh, for Put It On and Breathless Alone, I'm just dying man. to hear that whole album because it's probably that good front to bottom so this was back during the time people look at me when i say this if you're watching this on youtube sequencing <laughs> was very important you want right. your listeners to be hooked from beginning to the end because albums and cassettes can only hold so many records so you have your best eight or nine cuts yeah that's right. We had eight on that record, man. And start to finish that record is it's a you, you said it. It's a classic. It really is. And <clears throat> as I uh, make more progress this year with some of the other things I'm doing with music and I've got a foundation, I'm starting. <laughs> excuse me. I got my <clears throat> started a foundation. I'm starting uh, with a few other things. Uh, I've got some things in the works for 2021 and beyond that will bring attention back. As a matter of fact, when I was on The Voice, um, if you pull up, uh, for those who are watching, pull up Tony Mason, The Voice. And from there, um, my well, that's just going to show my segment on the show, um, uh, my performance on the show. But the, the whole segment had videos of uh, when we did, when we were, Mason was with Electra, some videos where we did Pour It On, which was the first single. And then the second single was called... Um, um, I'm sorry, Poured On was the second single. Double Exposure was the first single. And uh, and so <clears throat> you'll be able to see what we what we were, what we came from, and and how we were getting down in the 80s, man, the late 80s. Yeah, and, so, I, and I won't forget to mention Blake, Blake Shelton's from Oklahoma as well. That's right. Blake Shelton's from here. Um, man, and, and uh, um, oh gosh, that made me, you made me think of the other big country artists from here. Um, ah, big, tall uh, guy. Matter of fact, he wrote. He sang at Wayman Tisdale's funeral. Uh, um, uh, Toby Keith. Toby Keith. That's right. Yeah, Toby Keith has a has a big spot out here in Oklahoma. And uh, but Blake Shelton connected with me on the voice. Man, he was like, "Yo, man, when I come to Tulsa, we're gonna do something together." And I said, "I'm gonna hold you to that." <laughs> so mm. yeah, yeah, man. y'all could go yes, chop sir. it up and eat it up at um, Pioneer Woman's restaurant because I heard she got a restaurant somewhere in Oklahoma. Right. So Pioneer Woman. Give me some of your That's recipes right. and Trisha Yearwood too, because I seen your show, Trisha. I know you can right. burn in the kitchen. And, and Garth looks like he's uh, eating quite well and not from the publishing, I mean. Right. <laughs> ain't, ain't nothing Absolutely. wrong with that. You know what they say, the way to a man's heart is uh, through his stomach. Through his stomach, man. That's a real talk. Indeed, indeed. So tell us a little bit about yes, your sir. ministry and then also before you close, <clears throat> shout outs and plug your social media. Man, listen, I am um, I am starting, I, well, I started a few years ago. I've been a worship leader for a long time. and uh, But I started uh, Tony Mason Ministries Incorporated, which um, really is pretty much the foundational company for uh, Mace Tone Music, which is my music production for-profit side. And because uh, I do a lot of music, um, you know, um, getting back into songwriting again. Um, and, um, and I'm starting a foundation now. Uh, and it's going to be called uh, the Ambassador Project. My wife uh, gave it that name, and uh, and part of that is to really, more than anything else, I want to. I've done a lot of research and a lot of study on fatherlessness and father absent homes, mm. 
and the research was heartbreaking because uh, young men, and I'm focusing at the beginning more specifically on young men, because I know as, as the male goes, the home goes, I get that, you know, I, I, I've been really studying that for the, you know, for my life, because I want to be the best husband and the best father and the best mentor I'm supposed to be to, to whomever I'm supposed to be that to. And, uh, and so with the foundation, the word ambassador means representative and the representative is, is appointed by somebody to be a representative. And so um, <clears throat> I want young males to learn how to really represent. Um, and because there's a lot of fatherless homes, it's very difficult for them to really figure out um, of a way to be affirmed. Now I was with my dad. My dad was, was with me until I was 16 and my dad and my mom split. And I'm open, very open about that, you know, you know, it's um, because it was a part of my life, part of my history. They split. And when he split, I didn't realize how much it shook me up. Right. Because I'm used to having my dad around. And uh, and so <clears throat> so I can't imagine not having that first 16 years of him being in the home with me, teaching me what it is to be a man, what it feels like to be a man now. A lot of single parent homes out here, a lot of, a lot of mothers, single mothers. I'm just going to say this to you guys. If, you, if you're listening and you're watching, it's not your responsibility to be a father. You're not. You weren't created to be a father. You weren't created to be a man. And so I know some of y'all say, well, I'm a mother and a father. No, you're a mother. Just be a mom and be the best mom you can. And I say that to say it takes a, a male to show a male how to be a man. It, it takes that. I'm not saying moms can't give good principles and all that. I'm not saying that, but there's certain things that a father is supposed to have, is supposed to impart. Um, you know, and I, I learned this, man, when scripture says, train up a child, it wasn't talking about the mom, it was talking to the father. You do the training, you teach them, all children, you know, male and female, but you train them on their direction and their purpose and give them the principles that they're supposed to live by. And I can base that very simply off the fact that in the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam first and he gave Adam all the instructions. Eve didn't get any instructions. She didn't. It wasn't that God was trying to diss her. That wasn't it. But he had a he had a role for the male to be the foundation of the home. So I, I'm realizing that a lot of young males are not getting the other part of the foundation, right? They're, they got moms. They got that. But what about the, the man? So the foundation, the representative, the, the, the ambassador project, I just want to impart truth, impart self-affirmation. Um, because when, I, when my dad split, I didn't realize I was wavering with affirmation. I wasn't getting what I needed. And I was still very young. And so um, saying all that to say, it'll parlay itself into music with my foundation. I want to be able to, to buy and give instruments to underprivileged um, communities, um, people who want to get into music, um, because there's a lot of music programs in schools that, that are not being funded anymore. And so there's a two part, uh, two part uh, deal to the ambassador foundation, but that's part of what I'm doing in ministry, man, and traveling and singing and, and, uh, but I'm jumping back into, uh, I am jumping back into the studio and writing and, and getting ready, man. Uh, I got a call the night my show aired from the voice from a record label. And uh, so, you know, even though I didn't, when I was on The Voice, I didn't get a chair turn, but I sure got a phone call from a record label that says, hey, we're interested. So 
things are on the table. A lot of great things are in store. Y'all can hit me up, man. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, it's under Mr. Tony Mason, Facebook, uh, Anthony Mason, which is my first name. Uh, look me up, man. Uh, and uh, in all those social media platforms, man, go to YouTube, go to my my uh, YouTube channel, uh, pull up Tony Mason. Give me some likes, man. Give me some, you know, give me some love out there on that, man. So I'm, I'm just excited. We're about to turn the heat up on everything this year, man. Right. And hit them up on all those social media platforms. You can catch this interview in audio and video form wherever you stream your podcast, Apple, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Verbal, wherever you stream, and on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And the Stay Update right. podcast, Facebook.com, same name, Beyond the Album Cover, all one word. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause and thank you to Mr. Tony Mason for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover to chop it up with me. And thank you once again for taking the time. Man, I'm so grateful, man. Thanks for reaching out to me. And and I am going to be following everything you do. When this gets ready to air, let me know. Will do. And speaking of which...